Amen. Morning. So, uh, everyone's back from traveling and sickness, especially students. Welcome back. Uh, school classes for most of you start tomorrow. Um, but before class starts tomorrow, you have homework. Uh, so if you look at your sermon notes, and you should, this is part two of sexual ethics. For students especially, there is a part one. Go back and listen before part three on, on Sunday. Um, we're going to do three we we're doing three mini sermons in Proverbs chapter five. And um, there's a longer introduction last week, so I won't get into all that. But in a world like ours that has plenty to say about sex and emotions and, tempt- and, um, and, and, and desires, we too as the church should have reasonable and encouraging but also challenging messages for these things. So last week laid the foundation for the next couple weeks. So go back and listen to that. Uh, that is your first homework assignment. I, I'm trying to get ahead of your professors. Uh, so this week, week two. Next week, week three. And so, but one of the, the greatest safeguards we have against temptation is what we saw last week in verse six. So in your Bibles, Proverbs chapter, or Proverbs chapter five, verse six. The problem with the adulterous woman, the, the, the forbidden woman, the woman who brings men along into temptation, and the problem with the men that she lures in is that she does not ponder the path of life. Those who go into her do not ponder the path of life. This is our problem. So often we give in to our urges and we, we feel before we think. We don't meditate on what we do before we, we do it. And if some thought was given, if some consideration was paid to what we're about to do, a lot of us would save ourselves a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, and a lot of, a lot of consequences. Amen? I love what Charles Bridges says here. He says, the intrusion of one serious thought might break the spell and open the way of escape. But that's our problem. We don't give thought to our sin. We don't consider the domino effect as if I do this and then this, this gets knocked down and this gets knocked down. We don't look further down the the path. And so that's what I want to do this morning and next week. And that's what this book of Proverbs is about. To teach you discretion, to teach you wisdom, to think about actions before you do them. To think about what are the consequences of my sin? What will they lead to? What are the, 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 the effects to me and to everyone around me? And so I want to develop that thinking before acting, especially when it comes to lust. And so we'll flesh that out more. But I think for us, we've got to be honest with ourselves. The problem with our sin is we don't want to think about it. We want to push to the side. We want to, we want to ignore it. We want to act like it's not there and just hope that it'll go away. We want to ignore it. And we want to ignore what it's doing in us and where it's leading us. Now, lust is the obvious one in this text, because lust is unique, as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 6, and that it doesn't, just, um, it, it doesn't just affect the mind and the soul, it affects the body. All of us are brought, into, are brought into lust, but it's the same whether it's pride, or whether it's greed, or, or selfishness, or hatred, or any of these things. We don't think about the effect that it does to us over time. We get under this spell. We we embrace it. But there's something about lust, the temptation from that the father is trying to instruct the son in, 
as we saw last week, it is smoother than the rest. It is sweeter than the rest. It, 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 it promises so much. And so this text this morning is going to get the son and us, the reader, to consider the end of the path. If you go down this road, where will it lead? So we're going to jump right in, verse 7 of chapter 5, and I'll read through verse 14. And now, O sons, listen to me, and, not, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and they say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your grace on us this morning. Every one of us are as guilty as the sun in this, in this poem. Lord, without your forgiveness and your grace, we are destitute. Ten times out of ten, we will always go down that path to ruin, destruction, and death. We praise you for your mercy. Praise you for sending your son. Praise you for sending your spirit to open our eyes to the scriptures, to convict us of sin, to turn us to Christ, to breathe new life into us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would teach and instruct us this morning and that he would be with your servant because his sins are many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I said last week, each of these three sections in this poem begin with a command. Be attentive last week, listen this week, and uh, drinking next week. Oh, and verse 7, and now, O oh sons, listen to me. The, bo the body of the poem, we dealt with the introduction last week, the body of the poem deals with a cautionary tale. And it's simple, yet very stern counsel. Sons, now he gets into the plural. Solomon had many sons, because he had many wives. But now he's kind of speaking to men in general, to sons in general, but there's implications for all of us. And so before we can get into this, I want to think about the uh, parent and child dynamic. The purview that parents have is greater than the child. The parents have the purview of being able to see down the road, have usually have the, the purview of being down the road first and knowing where it leads. And because they, they love their children, they want them to avoid the pitfalls that either they fell into or, or others fell into. Um, and many of us, if we're honest, wish we would have listened to our parents better. At the time, it seems like, well, they're just old and out of touch. They don't know what they're talking about. And so many times we look back, I'm like, man, I should have listened. And this is another thing about our culture that I kind of want to lay a, a foundation with before we go any further. Our culture does not lift up experience and age and wisdom. Our culture loves youth and zeal. And I think many of us, maybe many of you are guilty of that too. I've got the new ideas. I'm the excited one here. Forget everybody who came before me. But what you don't have is experience. 
What you don't have is life lived on this planet and seeing others fall and falling yourself and knowing that's not going to end up well. Don't go down there. Don't stick your finger in that light socket. Don't eat the milk with chunks in it. The, the, the stuff that, that, we, that you learn, usually not on, on purpose, but it's really helpful if you listen to. But when you're young and you're excited and your body is, is doing all of the thinking for you, you don't want to hear counsel. And so this can save him and us a lot of headache if we listen to wise counsel before running headlong into sin. And so one of the greatest safeguards that God gives us, so we talked about a safeguard of pondering, just meditating and thinking through the word of God and and also applying it to our sin. What will happen if I go down this road? The other one is wise and seasoned saints. The beauty of having young and old in the body is we get energy and we get zeal and then we get wisdom to kind of pull back the reins a little bit. And so, of course, measuring against the word of God But there is a wealth of wisdom in seasoned saints who've been walking faithfully with Christ for years. And so draw on that wisdom. It is a a beauty that the Lord gives us in the church. And this is our discipleship model in this church. In Titus 2, we see that the older men are to instruct the younger men and the older women instruct the younger women. And so there is a responsibility to the young and, and old to protect the purity and the unity and the health of the body. And so we see this exemplified here for us, father instructing son. And so that's where we begin. And so now his command begins in verse 8, which he's going to unpack in the rest of it. Keep your way far from her. Keep far away. This is obvious. It should be, right? Or is it? Because if... We're honest, we often want to keep our sin at arm's length. Just far enough away where I'm not doing it right now, but if I need to, I can reach out and grab it anytime I want to. He says keep sin far away. The, the, the sense of, of the Hebrew here is don't even look in her direction. Don't go anywhere near her. As far away as you, you can. But that's not what we do often, is it? We have a secret place for our sin where no one else knows where it is. We can put it away and lock it up, but we know where the key is. Instead of staying far away from it and putting it to death, we put it in a nice, safe place, break in case of emergency, because this is my safety blanket. Here's where I find my my comfort. But when he says keep away from her, now the the, the keep away applies to all sin, but her is referring back to the adulterous woman in the first six verses. This woman with the lips of honey and 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 the smooth speech. Hebrew wants us to get, don't even look in her direction, don't even wave at her from a distance. Don't have anything to do with her. You cannot be friends with or flirt with your temptation and expect to overcome it. You cannot be friends with or flirt with your temptation and be surprised when you fall into it. Keep away from her. Far, far away from her. Especially sexual temptation. That's why he says don't even go near the door. And so the door here gives us this this image of the the threshold. We think, oh, the problem's inside in in the bedroom. No, he said it starts at the door. 
Don't even step up to the door. Don't even walk into the house. The the, the threshold of, of temptation is where you need to stay away from. Stay away from the very beginning of it. Now, most many Hebrew scholars think there's a double entendre going on here with door, but we won't get into that. But the language here is very specific. Don't even get near it. You know how you avoid falling off a cliff? You don't look over the edge. But this is also our, our problem. We want to see, oh, it's okay if I stick one foot in the door. It's okay if I walk up and knock, and I don't ever have to go in. I just want to see what's in there. Don't even go near the door. There's a great fundamentalist Baptist saying that says, avoid premarital sex because it may lead to dancing. So (laughs) be careful what you do because it may lead to something worse. (laughs) Some of you are going to get that on the drive home. So many of you who came to Christ in that's funny. You don't shake your head. That's, that's great. <laughs> um, many of you who came to Christ later on in, in life know what it's like to leave behind things that drew you into temptation. So for me, when I came out of the entertainment world and the entertainment industry in, in, in South Beach, there were things I had to leave behind. There were a lot of girls' numbers I had to delete. There were a lot of places I could no longer go. Guys I used to smoke and drink with, I had to delete their, their numbers and I had to not answer their, their phone calls. Um, probably one of the ones that w- was hardest for me is I had a massive record collection. Um, and so now it'd be worth a, a, a ton of money. Um, but then, not many people were buying records, but I, I, I threw in a dumpster thousands of, of records. It wasn't supposed to hurt that much. <laughs> um, but... This, this was something symbolic that I had to do because every time I would play those or look at those suggestive covers or listen to the songs, it would bring me back there. And if anything was going to bring me back to or make me nostalgic about my sin, I had to put it to death. Keep far away from it. So for, for, for some of you, you need to delete her number. You need to delete his number. You need to delete the app. You need to cancel cable. You need to lose some friends. Because if you go near them and they bring you into their house, or if any of that could lead to sin, Jesus tells us very plainly, it is better to go into the kingdom of God with one eye because you plucked it out because of sin than to have two and go to hell. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. And if you can't get there quickly, it will be up on the screen. So Jesus addresses this directly. The writer of Proverbs says, don't even go near the door. Jesus takes it a step further. Put it to death. Matthew 5, 28. If your right eye causes you to sin, oh, sorry, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the lie of our culture. That you can have a little bit of it and it won't do you any harm. You can look but not touch kill it. 
put it to death. Don't even go near the door. You will save yourself everything else that comes afterward. Everything else that comes after this is for the man who goes to the door. And so Solomon is saying to his son, if you don't go to the door, the rest of this conversation is not necessary. But if you're my son, you'll probably go to the door. And here's what's going to happen after all this. If you don't listen to my counsel, it's going to affect every area of your life. So beginning in verse 9, there is a, there is a series of, uh, there are four things that are good things attached to him that become bitter and four groups of people who will, who will benefit from it. So listen to me lest these good things become bitter. Verse 9, we're going to see the social impact. Verse 10, we're going to see the material impact. Verse 11, we're going to see the physical aspect. And verses 12 through 14, the emotional and internal impact. Every area of your life is going to be affected by sin if you go down that road. The social, the physical, excuse me, the, the social, the material, the physical, and the emotional. Why does Solomon go to such extent? Why does he speak so strongly? From experience. Uh, next book over, look at Ecclesiastes Verse 726, and it'll be on the, um, on the screen as well. 726, he says, And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. So fetters are shackles. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He says, I find something more bitter than death. Solomon had a thousand of them. A thousand women who became shackles to him. He knows. And so that's why he goes into all of, of, of these details. Many he experiences and many his sons will experience. So verse 9 and verse 10 give you kind of four people. Others, the merciless, the strangers, and the foreigners. These are just synonyms creating this kind of outside-inside distinction. Those out there, the others, the foreigners, the, the merciless, those you don't trust, those you don't like, if you go down this path of sin, you'll be their slave. Your loss will be their gain. Everyone you, you don't like will have power over you. And so he uses the, the, the four to kind of lean in here. For this fleeting pleasure, you will lose, they will all gain. And so how do we see this play out? This is Solomon's life. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, go a few books to the left. It'll be between Samuel and Chronicles. 1 Kings chapter 11. I want to read a longer passage, but I want to get the, 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 the picture here. Because the rest of Israel's trajectory is dictated by Solomon's decisions. This is 1 Kings chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. This became a general, generational sin that led Israel astray. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which God had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his, wife and his wives turned away his heart. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 
that the man who's married has a divided heart. Solomon's heart was divided 700 times. No matter, no, no wonder why he goes after all these other gods. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, plural. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went, went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did, what, uh, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifices to their God. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. The next few chapters show how God raises up, brings in adversaries, brings in enemies to Solomon. And Israel is never the same. The height of the reign of and uh, abundance and peace of Israel was under Solomon, and it was never the same again. And it was his heart, his desires after other women who brought him after other gods that led his kingdom to be split between his two sons. And all of the implications on him were seen in the life of his sons. And so you've got these four groups, the others, the uh, strangers, the Israel's gonna be raided by all these other peoples. And there's going to be warring between his sons and between the, the people of Israel. But it doesn't just describe those who will benefit, but it also describes specific results to the individual. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others. There's four yours here. Your honor, your years, your strength, and your labors. Your honor. This is your, your splendor, your regal dignity. Imagine one king saying to his younger sons, one of you will become king. You want, to be a, you want to keep all your regal dignity? Don't go after the adulterous woman. And so this would hit home to a young prince who would one day become king. And Rehoboam did not do any better at all. Your honor will be given to others, your, your years. Remember, the, the Hebrews valued highly long life. These, these two are, are kind of synonymous you want, you want to be honored your whole time on earth, and you want to have a long time on earth. Both of those will be given to others. Your, the, the good things that you value, the years of your life, will be given to the merciless. The shame and the consequences you will face if you go down that line of sin will not be over quickly, and it will not go easily. Because that honor, those years of your life will be given to the merciless. These are the cruel these are the uh, mockers who will be this combative reminder. Every time God raises up another adversary, there is a reminder. You sinned against me. You sinned against me. And there are many implications for this in our lives. You know, if you go after the, these, these things, this, this could be um, just reminders. This could be extortion. This could be blackmail. And whenever hell is sin over your head, 
I will keep this secret, but you must do this for me. And so there's this, this, uh, this social dynamic that you're going to be at odds with those around you. Then there's this material dynamic in verse 10, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. This is not just your reputation, but this is what you've earned. This is your, your, these are material consequences. If you uh, think about all the effort that you put into this woman who belongs to someone else, this is not your, your, your wife. You're going to pursue her. You're going to spend time and money on her. Men will work hard and spend money to indulge their desires. And rich kings, front and center. I love one of the uh, commentators says, if you go, over this type of wo- go after this type of woman, don't be afraid if she's a gold digger. This is the idea. If you go after her, you go into her, your strength, your labors will go to someone else. Go to someone else's home. And we probably see this most clearly with the effects of divorce. Because if you commit adultery and your wife leaves you, you will not be paying child support. Your money will go to someone else's home. Your children will be raised by someone else. Your strength and your energy will belong to someone else. You now have consequences to your actions that are just beyond, or that are beyond the simple interaction that you had with this woman. Your, your, your livelihood is going to be affected. The purity of your home is going to be affected. But the reality is here that every sin robs you. Every sin robs your time, robs your emotions, rise, robs your, 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 your money because you devote yourself to a fruitless endeavor. Even if you're an angry person who's angry all the time, how much time do you waste being angry? If you're a complaining person, how much time do you waste being com- complaining and being discontent? If you're a selfish person, how much, time do you, how much of your time is robbed from you? How much of your heart is robbed from you thinking about yourself? Sin steals what it can never repay, and it always wants more. Sin steals what it can never repay, and it always wants more. So Solomon is laying out this case here. There's, a, there's social implications. There's material implications. And then there's some physical. There's some body implications. Verse 11. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And remember, this is a wise parent. Don't just think about how it's going to feel right now. Think, I want you to look down the road. Do you want to be 20, 30 years down the road looking back and having made this mistake and everything in your family, in your life be affected? Look down the end of the road. This is your life in reflection. You don't want to be down way in the future thinking, I wish I should have listened to my parents. But at the end of your life, you groan. When the external fades away, the internal nags at us. We know that's true. You may have a sin that, that makes you confront someone else or you may have a difficult conversation or you may get fired or get an F on a paper or whatever it is. But the internal, that's what lasts. That, that shame and that, that guilt, the, the um, emotional wrenching of your heart because you know that you messed up. 
And we all do this. How often do we relive our own mistakes? Do we replay our own low light reel again and again? Replay our own stumblings and our own, and our own sins. And in the end, it affects our whole body. And how often have we been there where we are so broken over our own sins, so beating ourselves up that we have no energy in our body? Our entire physical being is taken over by these, these thoughts and, and emotions because we've been carrying around this weight. And we fall down in exhaustion. Here's this man. Years and years and years of his life carrying around this unrepentant sin. This is why repentance is so important. You lay these things down before the feet of Christ. You know that if, if you cry out to him, he is faithful to forgive. But the one who doesn't, they are beat down and their, their, their sins are a weight, shackles, fetters around them that they are dragging around their entire lives. And he, the words he uses here are interesting. When your flesh and body are consumed, this is not a good consuming. Every part of you is affected by this. This is in direct contrast to what we saw in chapter 3. Flip back over to chapter 3 real quick. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be of healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Fear the Lord, turn from evil. Healing of your flesh, refreshment of your bones. This sounds good. This is good. Turn away from evil. But if you turn to evil, it will consume your flesh and your bones. Ever been so completely by your own, completely consumed by your own sins and your own mistakes that you feel paralyzed? The Father says, I love you so much, I don't want you to go down that road. I don't want you to be burdened with these things forever. Jesus gives very strong words to this in Revelation chapter 2. It is often that sexual immorality is tied to idolatry, then has uh, implications to the body. Revelation chapter 2, 20 and, and 22. This will be up on the screen as well. But last book in your Bible. Uh, this is the church at Thyatira, the famous woman, the Jezebel. Notice what the consequences for Jezebel are. Pick up in verse 20. But I have this against you, the whole church, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. There are often very physical consequences to unrepentant sin. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. We think that we can compartmentalize my sin, our, our sin. I do the same thing. We think we can put it in a little box, I will put it over here, and it will only have consequences over here. No, it spreads. It affects every area of your life. And if you leave it unrepentant, there are dire consequences. Ultimately, those who continue in their unrepentant sin, this leads to death. Here's where the, the, the end of this, uh, of this poem. 
But right now, the father is laying out his, his case in every area of the son's life. And this, this groaning that we see in verse 11 is articulated in verse 12. 12 through 14, we, we hear what's going on. We hear maybe even the words of Solomon himself, thinking back on, on the, the years prior and all of his sin and what it led him to. He voices this groan and the emotional toll that it takes on him. And he says, I, he says how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Seems like really strong words, doesn't it? I hated discipline, despised reproof. That's, that's a little rough, is it? If you don't love discipline, you might as well hate it. It is no good for you. If you don't recognize that you need correction, you need reproof, you need discipline, you might as well hate it because you, you think you are, you're better than it because it's no good for you. And what you hate says as much or probably more about who you are than what you love. Look at Proverbs 12.1. I cannot say it any more plain than this. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I know we tell, we, we, we tell our children don't say, don't, don't say this. It's because you don't call your brother stupid. This is, this is not a word that you, that you throw around. The idea here is if you hate reproof, you are stupid. You are foolish and you deserve to die. Don't hate discipline. Don't hate correction. Don't love your sin so much that you run from correction. But we're humans and we do what we love to do. The things that we desire most are going to drive us. We don't love to be disciplined. We don't love to be corrected. Our flesh hates it. Initially. But if you're wise and we get over our little pity party and think, why is me? Or woe is me? Or why me? Hopefully you get over it quickly and realize, this is for my good. Whether we get it from God or our parents or those who love us, but we should welcome discipline. Because as we've seen in Proverbs, and we see in Hebrews chapter 12, and you can turn there if you want, Yes, please turn there. That discipline is for beloved sons. Discipline is not for the others out there. Discipline comes with love because you really have to love someone to have a hard conversation with them that is for their own good. You must really hate someone if you see them in their, in their sin and ignore it. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 5. We get this picture that the writer lays out for us. Hebrews 12, verse 5. He begins with a quote from Proverbs 3 that we looked at a couple months ago. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Interesting. The call in Hebrews, we studied this in our Bible study over a long period of time, is to endure, to keep enduring, to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. You endure for discipline. 
Because discipline is what transforms you from one degree of glory to another. Discipline is what brings you into maturity. We should embrace discipline. We endure for discipline. That means God loves me because he is burning off what is wicked and undesirable in me. Because he is correcting me so that I might look like Christ. So that I might be a better reflection of him. And notice what he says here. God is treating you as sons. I don't think you often think about how incredible that is. Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he is called first among many brothers. We are given an inheritance with Christ. And if that means that being the son of God, the father, being brothers with Christ means that I get disciplined, praise the Lord. Because what's the alternative? I can hold on to my sin and I can hate discipline. And God says, I never knew you. He goes on. For what son is there who the father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If the Lord does not make you miserable in your sin, if you are not convicted when you sin, you might not be a son. Don't be afraid when you get convicted and you beat yourself up over sin. Praise the Lord that the Spirit brings your sin to your attention. If you feel nothing, cry out because you may not be alive. But if you are, the Father loves you. Besides this, we have earthly fathers, verse 9, who disciplined us and we, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Your parents want you to be better children. Amen. But God wants you to be more holy like him. He wants you to be better children for him. That's why he disciplines us. Don't hate discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Every one of us with parents who disciplined us, who kept us from doing something, many things more stupid than we already did, should be thankful that this peaceful fruit of righteousness that trains us in discipline, and because God loves us, he does the same thing. And so the writer of Hebrews knows pastorally, here's the point where, man, I've been disciplined. Man, I sinned this week. Man, I continued in this. He knows exactly what you're thinking. That's why he continues in verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And remember, he's the same one who told us that we boldly approach with confidence the throne of grace. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If the Lord is disciplining you, that means it's for holiness so that you may see him. So I want you to get that because the son didn't. And maybe this is Solomon speaking from experience, or maybe he's prophetically speaking into the future. But he says, verse 13, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. I did not incline my ear to my instructors. Teachers and instructors, synonymous here. The very first verse says, incline your ear, son. Probably don't be like me. I didn't listen to my teachers. I didn't listen to my instructors. 
This is not sin done out of ignorance. This is sin done against counsel. Think about that. This is not sin that's done without information. It's not sin in ignorance. This is sin against counsel. How often are we guilty of that? I think there is very rare a time when we sin and we don't know what we're doing. When we go headlong into our sin, it is against counsel. It is putting our fingers in our ears and, and not listening and not thinking and hoping that this little moment of pleasure that I get from my sin will be worth it. And it never is. The best time to think about our actions is before doing them. I cannot count the times when I've sat across the table from someone counseling them after the fact. Hey, I've done this. I've stepped in it again. Here's where I've put myself. What should I do? Well, you should have came to me last week before you did that, and then I wouldn't have to be pulling you out. Think before you step in. Listen to your instructors. Listen to your counselors. Every one of us has done something we regretted and think after the fact, man, I wish I shouldn't have done that. So-and-so told me they were right. How stupid am I? I keep going against counsel. I keep listening to my own flesh. And so I have to ask you this morning, do you seek wise counsel and do you listen to it? Do you seek out older, wiser saints? Do you, do you, do you study the scriptures and say, should I really do this? Or are you giving in to your urges? And are you hoping to do what you want to do anyway and only listening to the voices that confirm what you've already planned? You say, you know what, I'm not going to take a step until I seek counsel. I'm going to listen to my teachers. I'm going to listen to my instructors. Now, we see this on a micro level within the church. But this is what happens on a macro level with those who refuse the gospel. Those who don't listen to the proclamation of the truth. They, they, they prefer lies. They don't care about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want my sin. I don't want any teachers. I don't want any instructors. I want to be a law unto myself. And it will turn into ruin. They want to hold on to their sin because that is where they find their identity and their comfort. And so here we are in verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And this honor and shame culture, when you get found out, it's like your whole world is crashing in. It's like growing up in a small town, in a small church, and you get caught with the girl down the street and everybody knows. The assembled congregation takes you to task as they should. So here we've got the combination of the public shame and the private conviction weighing down on him. We can get real for a moment. Every one of us, I'm sure, knows the implications of this. Every one of us have seen the pain of infidelity and, and, and divorce. We know that that shame and that pain lasts for years or decades if it ever heals. And often it is just one moment running after fleeting pleasure and a lifelong regret with shame and utter ruin. I know that I have. I've seen the destruction in my family. So anytime my mind thinks, well, yes, yeah, she looks good, I have to remember to go down that, 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 that road it will affect me and my wife and everyone around me. I can't do that. Consider the end of the road. 
And it was even worse because the law prescribed a death sentence for anyone who was caught in adultery. So his utter ruin, if he was caught, would lead to death in the assembled congregation. So I want to deal with, with this term, and then we're going to spend our last few moments in uh, 1 Corinthians. In that honor and shame culture in the assembled congregation, this is your identity. Your, your, your status, your stature, your community standard was in the, the, the gathering of the people in your local area. This has direct implication for the church. That's why accountability and discipline are, are another great safeguard for sin. Many of us won't sin because we don't want to let down our brothers and, and sisters, and praise the Lord for that. This is why church discipline is a good thing. It's good for you, and it's good for the entire body. The congregation comes together and protects one another and disciplines one another out of, out of love. But in our culture, it is very appealing not to be a part of the congregation. It is very appealing to be a law unto ourselves. Many people want to avoid accountability. They don't want to be part of a congregation. They, they, they want their, their sins hidden. They think, if, if I stay over here in the shadows, I'll never be found out. No one can, I can never let anyone in. No one can ever hurt me. Many of you do that here. Most of you I know really well, and I love how people come early and stay late. But some of you come in as soon as service starts, and you book it as soon as service is over because you don't want to be known. And many of you have signed up for our membership class. We're going to have that discussion because that's not acceptable. And you can't be a member here if you don't want to be known because I have to give an account for you one day. I have to stand before the Lord and say, how did I care for your sheep that you gave me? Well, I don't know. I never got a chance to talk to them. But also you should care too. You should care that people love you enough to tell you the truth. You have people who love you enough to discipline when you need it, need it and encourage you when you need it. God has built this safeguard because he wants us to be holy. Because he wants to be protected. And there is protection within the flock. There is protection within the shepherd. We, we dealt with this in, in, in 1 Peter 5. And so wrapping up, there is no other path for unrepentant sin than pain, ruin, and ultimately death. Look at the last three verses of this proverb. Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his path. The Lord ponders. You may not ponder your steps, but the Lord does. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast to the cords of his sin. He holds on to his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. All this is said to get the son to ponder and think through going down the road of sin, and that's what I'm hoping to do here. I hope you ponder. I hope you think through it. And so um, in our last few moments, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Case, the church in Corinth is a great case study, and this is their most pervasive sin. So we'll deal with chapter 6 this week and some of chapter 7 next week. But I want to conclude here with application because this is really helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It will not be on the screen because I want you to know where it is and I want you to turn there. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Here's the chief concern to every person on the earth. At the end of all things, will I be numbered with Christ or will I be numbered against him? Will I enter his kingdom? Will I inherit eternal life or will I be damned for eternity apart from him under his wrath? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's the chief concern. You know who will not inherit it? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You must know that. The writer of Proverbs says you cannot go down this path and live. Paul is telling them you cannot be in these things and live. You cannot be unrepentant and live. But that is not you. Verse 11, I love this verse. And such were some of you. Amen to that. And such were some of you. That used to be you. If you are in Christ, that's the old you. Put that to death. That should no longer mark you. But you were washed, regenerated. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The good news of the gospel helps us to see that sin no longer defines us. It helps us to view sex in that way. That it is, it is something that God has given us for good purposes and that can be distorted. But if you're in Christ, you don't live under that slavery anymore. You used to do those things, but you're not to focus on your sin. You're to focus on your, on your regeneration. You were born again in Jesus Christ. Your sanctification, he set you apart to live for him. Your justification, he declares you righteous for all of eternity because his son paid the price for you. That is how you, you are to view your sin. So far from me because I am a son. I'm a beloved son. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And as a son, I'm free, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Do we have freedom in Christ? Absolutely. Is there anything that can condemn a true son of the living God? Absolutely not. But not all things are helpful. You're a son. Act like it. Act like you have some sense. Act like you are living as a new person. I will not be dominated by anything. Here's what's at play. If we don't repent of our sins, if we go down that, that path, sin is now leading us. The, the fetters and shackles of sin are dragging us along as slaves. Don't do that. I will not be dominated by anything else. Interesting that he goes right to food after that, because that's one thing. If I have the, the temptation to be dominated by anything, it is my stomach. Even food that you need is going to be destroyed, is what he's saying here. But the body is meant for, not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do not let your body be dominated for things it was not meant to be dominated by. Jesus Christ is Lord over you and your body. Don't let your urges be Lord over you. Don't be slaves to these things. And notice what his appeal is to. Not do better, try harder. And God raised the Lord, and the Lord will also raise us up by his power. He appeals to the gospel. You know God, the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you know who delivered him from the clutches of sin and death and his own wrath? He'll deliver you too. I think we find it easier to believe that Jesus can save me from my sins on the final day than he can deliver me from my sins today. 
It's easy for us to believe, yeah, I'm gonna be with Jesus one day, but I'm gonna live in my sin until then. You don't think the God who rose Jesus from the dead, who will resurrect you one day, can deliver you from your sin today? This is what Paul is saying. Don't be defined by your sin. And his appeal is the cross. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're united with Christ. The son of the living God came for you and sent his spirit to seal you and live within you. Don't you know you belong to Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? It's interesting that he's building this in the church membership language. Never, he says. And then here's the argument. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here we have the pattern and the perversion of sex. The pattern of sex is that the two become one and it is a beautiful union to the glory of God. But the perversion of sex is every time you're united to another who is not your, your, your spouse, you are being united to a prostitute. You are not only sinning against the Lord, but you are sinning against your spouse or your future spouse or someone else's spouse. It is a sin that affects your body and, and other bodies. The two become one is this beautiful picture of the gospel and Christ and his church. But this flippant view of sexual intimacy is an affront to Christ and his church. It says we exalt pleasure above what God has patterned for us. But, verse 17 but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He begins with saying you're united with Christ, and he says again you're united with Christ in spirit. So flee sexual immorality. Get as far away as possible. Don't go near the door as if the house is on fire. Every, and, and why does he lean in so hard here? Because every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This, this language that people use about diet or uh, tattoos is about union with, with, with Christ, about being a, a house for God to dwell in. But we don't get in the English is all these verbs in the Greek are plural. This is speaking about the church. This is a corporate issue. This is not an individualistic issue. And so many of us think, I have, to, I have to struggle with this on my own. He is speaking to the entire church. You are joined with Christ. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here is where God is worshipped. Don't defile it. Guard it. Protect it. Encourage each other. We see the whole working of the Trinity in this, this passage. You are sons of the Father. You are sanctified in, in Christ. You are sealed in the Spirit. This is where I dwell among my people. Protect my people. And then the last verse here. You are the end of, 20, or of 19. You are not your own. We are stewards of even our own bodies. For you were bought with a price. Ends with the gospel as he should. You know why you should care? Because Jesus died for your sin. How dare you carry it around? You were bought with a price. How valuable are you? Jesus' very life. And that price 
shows how much God hates sin, how much God wants us to flee from it and put it aside. And this final line is fitting, so glorify God in your body, plural again. Glorify God in this church. May it be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, the name above every name. Let us never lose sight that we call you Father because we are sons. And I pray that every blood-bought son in here, and I say that word intentionally because we are all heirs, that we turn from our sin and turn to Christ. It is his blood who, it is he who sought us, his blood who bought us. You rose us again to new life and you gave us your spirit that we may be set apart for you and worship you rightly. Lord, forgive us, we have failed to glorify you. We have ran after our own sin and our own desires. We have been selfish. We have been greedy. We have lusted after every pleasure that is not you. But thank you for discipline. Thank you for correction. Thank you for your rod and your staff that correct your sheep, that bring us back to the fold again and again when we wander in our paths that we don't consider. Lord, I just pray that your sons here this morning will love your discipline, that we will avoid the path of pain and ruin that leads to death, that we would walk in the straight and narrow and righteous path. But I also ask for anyone here this morning may not be a son, anyone who is on that path right now, anyone who feels the ruin and shame of their, their sin, I pray that your spirit will make them miserable and turn their heart to you. May they cry out for forgiveness. May they know that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And may he be glorified in their turning and may the angels rejoice in heaven. May you be glorified here as you are in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.